The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Running from Grace, the Gospel According to Jonah. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, we're going to be studying the book of Jonah. Open up your Bibles to the book of Jonah. That's right after Obadiah. That should help you. Uh, Good luck with that one, right? It's a small minor prophet, so it's a a small book in the Old Testament. Find that. If it's on your app, it's a little easier to find. So you can open up the YouVersion Bible app, Sacred City Church. All of our liturgies there under the live link. You can also... Uh, so just let's go to Jonah, and uh, we're going to be in the book of Jonah. It's four chapters. We're going to be in it for six weeks. Um, I'll be honest, I was so pumped to preach this that last night I was just depressed, okay, because I'm sitting there a- after being incredibly encouraged uh, by an Alabama football game that I won't mention, uh, I went downstairs, and I was very depressed because I felt all I was doing to my sermon was cutting stuff out. And it was too long, and I was like, oh, that's so good. Oh, and then I had to cut it out, and I left it on the cutting room floor. So I feel like I really am preaching. I might be preaching more than one sermon this morning. I've got six, five more weeks after this to follow it up. But uh, Jonah has been really doing work in my soul, and I pray that it does a really good work in your soul. I think the book of Jonah and the story of Jonah is probably one of, if not the most well-known stories uh, in all the Bible. But unfortunately, it's probably one of the most well-known but least understood stories in all the Bible. See, everybody knows about the fish, right? But very few people really know that this book is all about man running from God and God chasing after man, right? Man running from grace... Man sinning in rebellion, and God just pursuing man in grace. 
And one of the reasons that we're going to be spending the next six weeks studying this book is I think it's one of the best places to go, especially in the Old Testament, but it's one of the best places to go to not just, to, to really understand the gospel, the, the core message of Christianity. You see it laid out, um, not just systematically, but in a story-formed way. To see the gospel in story form. And I think our deepest need as a church, as a gospel people, as a light in a city, as a people in this dark time, as a good neighbors, I think our deepest need and our deepest desire right now is to rediscover the gospel. Did you know that every generation, the gospel doesn't really get passed down, it gets rediscovered. Every generation has to re-encounter the gospel. Not that the message changes, the content never changes, but we become hardened to it, or become blind to it. The, uh, the sharpness or the warmth uh, doesn't affect our heart the way that it should. So we need to be reacquainted with the gospel. And I think, um, and, and when, we, when that happens, it just changes us. It changes us, not just our theology, but it changes our hearts. It enables us to love God and love others in a greater way. For me personally, this happened about, I think about six years ago. About six years ago. Uh, and it came through a very difficult season of mine. Um, I felt called to plant a church. And when I decided to plant the church, I got fired and let go and didn't really know what to do. And my life was in a storm. My life was upside down. And I felt like everything was crashing in on me. And my life up until that moment, I didn't even know it. Up until that moment, my life was really built upon my um, performance. It was really built upon my achievement. It was really built upon my hard work and my effort. Now, I preached the gospel. This is crazy, right? I preached the gospel, but I didn't get it in my soul. I got it kind of here, but I wasn't a gospel-shaped person, all right? I wasn't humble. I, I wasn't broken. I didn't see my own sin very well. And about six years ago, God used the gospel, and God used circumstance to kind of break me and to crush me, to change my heart and to change the type of man I am, the type of father I am, the type of husband I am, the type of pastor I am, the type of church planner I am. This church uh, is a result of God changing my heart, right? This church would just be, if if I would have planted this church six years ago, it would just be probably a Sunday morning thing where just, you know, it's about the stage, it's about the Sunday gathering, it's about looking slick. Right? But God changed my heart and then therefore has changed the way this church looks and changed many of your hearts. And what we're going to see is that's kind of what happens here uh, in the book of Jonah. It takes this, and what, that's what I'm hoping is going to happen to many of us in this gathering. I hope that the gospel is going to go from here into our heart and really change the type of people we are so that we can love God and love others in a greater dimension, in a more heartfelt way. And we're going to see that in the book of Jonah. I think it's going to help us accomplish that purpose because the book of Jonah tells a gospel story that's just shocking enough to wake us up to grace. I think many of us have heard that word grace. We might have some kind of working definition of it, but what Jonah is going to show us is our primary problem in life is that we actually run from the God of grace. We actually do not like grace and we run from it. Now, if God feels distant to you, I'm going to tell you that's because you don't. You might not know this, but you're running from grace. That's why you walk around with a sense in yourself that just something isn't right. That somehow you don't really know. It's got this vague, this kind of 
dull sense that God is not pleased with you and that you need to do something to fix it. Like there's always this onus of responsibility upon you to do something to shape up or be better or do more or love God better. There's always this thing on you, this nagging sense of, am I good enough for God? So if that's true, and, and most of us walk around with this kind of sense that, you know, am I good enough? I don't know if I'm quite good enough for God. Why? In, let me just ask you this. If we feel like God kind of thinks that we're not good enough, right, all the time, and there's this just nag, why would we want to come to a gathering? Why would we want to come near to God? Why would we want to be near him if all that being near him does is make us feel less about ourselves? That we get near this holy and righteous and just God, but all it does is make me feel worse and worse and worse about myself, right? Makes me feel more worthless and more broken. He just confirms all the doubts I have about myself, right? Why would I want to be near that God? Now, C.S. Lewis and the book Surprised by Joy, he talks about, and our culture says this kind of stuff a lot, he, he talks about people want to talk about man's search for God. One might as well talk about the mouse's search for the cat. See, why would a mouse go looking for a cat, right? It's mouse suicide, right? So when preachers get up here and we tell you that you should love God, love God, don't just obey him, don't just bend to his will, right? Don't just do his checklist, but love him, right? That, that's a contrast, those are two contrasting things, right? That, that's a juxtaposition, is it not? How can I love a God that I'm afraid to be near? How can I love a God who, when I'm near him, he just confirms all the bad things I think about myself? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. That's what Jonah's all about. See, this nagging sense that we all have of not being good enough, of we think we need something else in our life. I just need a little bit more money. I just need that promotion. I just need one more child. Sister, I'll tell you, that ain't going to solve nothing. Just let you know, okay? I got four now. I know. That nagging sense, that awareness that you're somehow broken, you're somehow lacking, you just need one more thing to push you over the top into happiness, into satisfaction, right? That, that distance you feel between you and God, he's cold, he's distant, he's far away. That distance you feel, even when you're surrounded in a room with people, you still feel distant, you still feel lonely. See, the Bible has a word for that. It's called sin. Now, that word has completely fallen out of vogue, if it was ever in vogue in our society. You'll never turn on the news and hear any talk about sin. But what's interesting is that we all still feel like sinners. So now we've got this quandary in our culture. We all feel messed up, but now our culture doesn't even have a word to describe what's wrong with us. And if our culture can't describe what's wrong with us, then of course it doesn't have any answer for us. Yesterday my son said, Dad, we're watching football. He said, Dad, what's wrong? What's, what's, what's the point of commercials? And I said, oh, that's easy, son, to make you unhappy. What? Yeah, that's the point of commercials. It's got to make you unhappy and then convince you that, you know what, I am unhappy. I do realize this. I'm not happy unless I have a phone as big as my Bible. 
I need that in my life right now, right? I'm not happy unless I have that dinner or unless I have those clothes. Once I vote for that person, then I'll be happy. Hmm. I don't think that's going to work quite right, right? See, we all have a sense there's something wrong with us, there's something wrong with our world, but we, our culture doesn't have a word for it. The Bible does have a word for it. The Bible calls it sin. Funny, because I think sometimes our church has a marketing problem. One of the things I hear over and over, I meet somebody in the coffee shop or I meet them in the hall here or something, and they say, man, I never knew how bad of a person I was until I came to Sacred City. Thanks for telling me how awful I am. Now, on the surface, that doesn't sound very inviting. That doesn't sound very encouraging. I'm like, do you tell your neighbors that? Come to my church. You'll feel terrible. And then we'll all laugh about it, and we'll quote it from the script. Well, we walk away from you, Lord. We'll just get it out there, make it public. Come on. You'll love it. Right? But the good thing about this, the good thing about having a label for it, being understanding what sin is, is that if you have the diagnosis, then you can also get a prescription for it, right? My wife, um, in her last month of pregnancy, was having all these weird back pain. And it was very frustrating for us. She'd be waking up in the middle of the night, and it was just a lot of pain, and oh, it's back labor, oh, it's kidney stones, oh, it's, I mean, we, we had all this, and nobody knew what the heck was going on. And it's very frustrating to have a pain and have something going on, and you don't have a prescription for it. You don't have a way to fix it. Well, this is why you need the gospel. This is why you need the Bible. This is why we need God There's something wrong with us, but the Bible clearly says what it is. And when he diagnoses it, he also gives us a prescription for it. And the prescription is the grace and mercy and kindness of God. Now, when I say the word sin, it's got a lot of baggage behind it. Everybody thinks, well, we don't need to talk about sin because everybody knows what sin is. I don't think everybody knows what sin is. I think we all have... Uh, our own ideas and concepts of what sin is, and I think we need to be shocked by how the Bible itself talks about sin. See, if you're non-religious in here, you grew up maybe in a, we call secular uh, home, or if you grew up outside of a faith community, um, you, you grew up kind of doing your own thing. Now, you probably think that sin is just breaking the rules. Sin is breaking the rules. And actually, you'd probably say sin is breaking all the fun rules right? That's kind of how it looks like from when you're outside of the church, right? Sin is breaking the rules. God has kind of set these arbitrary rules out there that look really fun, and sin is when you break those rules, right? Don't steal, right? Except on your taxes, right? Don't lie, right? Except on your taxes. Don't cheat. Okay, here we go. We've got a common theme going on right there. Don't envy, right? You break those rules, that's sin. And religious people, it's interesting, Religious people, their concept of sin is just funny. Religious people's concept of sin is what they used to do. Or what their neighbor does. Or what them folks on the news do. Or what the people in Ferguson do. See, that's what religious people, that's how they view sin. They see it as the really bad things they might have did, they dabbled in a little bit when they were younger. Sex outside of marriage, drugs, drunkenness, what have you. But what that does is it makes religious people really hesitant to hang around 
with uh, the type of people who would blatantly sin in their view. It makes religious people really distant from those who are suffering. It makes, really, it makes religious people really cold and hard and even blind to their own sin and their own in- inadequacy. They come off as proud and cold and looking down on those who don't sin in the same ways that they do. And honestly, what happens is, is those religious people um, get really cold and distant from God. They don't know it. They don't know it, but they're really distant from him because they're not trying to relate with him through grace, which is the only way that God relates to a sinful human race. Now, knowing you're a sinner doesn't fix anything. That's just the diagnosis, right? Uh, knowing that you used to be a sinner and now you're trying really hard not to be, right? Uh, that doesn't help you very much either, okay? What we must see, and I think what this is going to show us in Jonah here, are the specific ways that human beings, no, the specific ways that we run from God. That right now, I believe many of us, if not all of us in this room, are actively running away from God, and we need to see how we're running away from him, and we need to admit it and to confess it to him, and we need to allow the just aggressive grace of God to overtake us and just lavish us with his one-way love. That's what we need. With full awareness that we don't deserve it, I think that's what's going to change us into gospel-centered people who love God with just a reckless abandon, love others with a reckless abandon, that people look in and go, how can those guys lay down their lives in such a way? How can they serve their city in such a way? How can they give so generously in such a way? And the only answer is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ radically changing us, overtaking us, tackling us. I'm just, I'm thinking about when I'm a kid and I'm in the ocean and you try to outrun the waves, right? And you're trying to run and just, they just come over you and just completely envelop you. That's what needs to happen to us this morning with the grace of God. So, that's where we're going to go. That's what we're going to look at. And uh, like a wave, the grace of God doesn't come at us nice and neat. It doesn't come at us on our own terms. Uh, The grace of God comes like a wave and it overwhelms us and it shocks us and it levels us. Comes no other way. And we're going to see that from the book of Jonah. Uh, Here we go. Let's go. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. When you're there, stay there. Here we go. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. All right. Now this story starts out like most Old Testament prophetic books. The word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, right? The God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews, the covenantal God, the word of the Lord comes to this guy named Jonah. Now, the books of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Joel, and Hosea all kind of ring out with this phrase. Whenever you see that phrase in the Bible, it's a unique Hebrew phrase um, that is specific to describe the calling or the functioning of a prophet, okay? So Jonah is a prophet. He is God's man. He was chosen by God to be God's mouthpiece, to speak to the people the words that God would give him. This was his calling. This was his vocation. 
This was his God-given identity. So, as we read, and we've already seen probably, and we already know, in verse 3, this is a plot twist that we're supposed to kind of pause and meditate on and look at. Let's keep reading. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Okay. Jonah is the first major plot twist we're going to see in the book. Right? Jonah, God's man, God's preacher, God's prophet, hears the word of the Lord and then turns and runs in the opposite direction. God says, go there. He says, no, I'm going here. All right? Now that means, what, the, I, want, what I want you to see here, this is going to show us a little bit what sin does and how sin creeps in. Sin isn't just breaking the rules. Okay? Jonah disobeyed God. It's more than that. What's happening here, Jonah isn't just breaking the rules. Jonah is committing identity suicide. See, he's saying to God, I don't want to be your prophet anymore. He's saying to God, I don't want the identity you've given me. You've called me a prophet. That's the vocation you called me to. I don't want it anymore. Here, you can have it back. I actually would rather go my own way, do my own thing, build my own identity, I'm dreaming of a little cottage and fishing in a stream. No thanks, Nineveh. No thanks, God. I'll build my own life on my own rules. I'll build my own identity. And what we're going to find here, and I hope you see, right away we're going to see that sin is far more than just disobeying the rules. Sin is trying to build my life, trying to build my identity on anything other than God, And what we're going to find out is, listen, when you build your life, when you build your identity, when the center of who you are, the most meaningful part of your humanity is something other than God himself, nothing but trouble is ahead of you. Your identity will be too weak. It won't be strong enough. You'll be ready for an identity implosion or explosion sometime in your life. And that's what we're going to see is going to happen to Jonah. All right? So let's just keep reading. Let's go back to verse 2. We'll get to it. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Now, at this time, Nineveh is the biggest, baddest, most dominant city in the world. Okay? This is roughly 750 years before uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, which is, listen, modern-day Iraq. If you've been watching the news, you've probably heard a lot about Mosul in Iraq. ISIS has actually renamed Mosul Nineveh because the ruins of the city of Nineveh are right across the river. And when I say river, don't think like, just think it's smaller than the Mississippi River, right? It's more like Duck Creek, right? When you're thinking of the river. Right across, that's where the ruins of the ancient city of Nineveh are. Now, for us to understand what's going on in Jonah, we need to dig down into the context a little bit. Um, Assyria was an imperialistic uh, nation that was taking over the surrounding nations, right? And Israel was on their hit list, okay? Assyria was the biggest, baddest in the, in, in the, uh, 
in the world at the time. Nineveh was the biggest, baddest city at the time. And Israel was right outside there. And Israel was on their hit list. They're about to take them. They knew at any moment they could be taken over by Assyria. So Assyria was a sworn enemy to Israel. So when the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and he says, Jonah, go tell Nineveh, go speak to Nineveh, it's about as welcome as if God were to tell us, go preach to the Islamic State in Iraq. Right now, it's about as, it, we would probably go, hmm, about that, I've got a dinner in the oven. Uh, did I really hear that? I don't think I really heard that, right? Like, we're not gonna welcome that message. God says, go tell that pagan, powerful city to repent, right? Now, that kind of sounds like some old preachers I heard when I was growing up. You go tell them good-for-nothing, rotten sinners that God's coming. He's going to get them. Judgment's coming. Take them to left behind. Let them know everybody's about to get zapped up, right? But then look at this plot twist. Look at this plot twist. Nineveh is evil and disobedient. They're sinful. But so is Jonah. God's prophet, God's spokesman, God's preacher gets his marching orders, and then he goes in the complete opposite direction. Now, it's easy for us to go, well, hey, come on, that's a tough job. Go to Iraq and preach to IS, that's a tough job. You're going to get killed. You're going to get beheaded. You're going to be on... Uh, the news, right? But that's not why Jonah turns and goes in the opposite direction. Not at all. But we're going to find out. See, this, this book is so full of surprises. We don't find it out completely until chapter 4, but I'm going to give you a little heads up. We'll talk about it more later. Jonah doesn't flee because he's afraid of the Assyrians. Jonah doesn't flee because he's afraid of the Ninevites. Jonah doesn't flee because he thinks he's going to get beheaded. He's not afraid that this mission is so difficult he might lose his life. Now, Jonah knows God. He knows God's character and God's nature. He says in, listen, chapter 4, when God says, why didn't you want to go? Jonah says, you know why I didn't want to go? Because you're merciful. You're gracious. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah runs from God because he's afraid that he might be successful. He's afraid that he'll preach the gospel to the Ninevites and they'll actually turn and God will be gracious to them and God will invite them into the family of God. And Jonah is repelled by the grace of God. He's repelled by it. I can't believe God would take these no good sinners and invite them into this church and invite them into this family. I, he's just absolutely staunchly opposed to it. So he because of his fear that God would grant repentance to them, he runs in the opposite direction. Now, I started out saying this, this sermon saying that everybody runs from grace. That's our problem. That's why we feel far from God. That's why we struggle to forgive those who hurt us. That's why we think we need more and more and more money. We are running from the very thing that will satisfy our souls. We're run, running from the cure. We're running from the all-satisfying grace of God, that God could actually love us, that he could be into us, that God could be in heaven singing over us right now. It blows our mind. 
We don't believe it could happen. We think, no, I've got to be good enough. I've got to be better than I am right now. I've got to have more things or be more influential, have more leadership opportunities. I've got to be better. God can't love me the way that I am. Jonah's going to show us we're wrong. God can love us. God's grace is ridiculous. So what we're going to see here, what we need to see is there's two ways. Right away, we're going to see there's two ways, two predominant ways to run from God. There's two predominant ways that we run from grace. Number one, we see it through the Assyrians, right? The Ninevites. They run from the grace of God through outright rebellion. This is liberalism. This is where people throw off all restraint and do whatever seems right in their own eyes. I am my own God. I make my own rules. I'm a logical human being. I can determine what's right and wrong for myself. They sleep with who they want to sleep with. They spend their money how they want to spend it. They make their own rules. Who is God to tell me how to live my life? It's one way people run from grace. It's the liberal route. You're probably pretty familiar with that one. But here we, here we see another way. One much more dangerous than the liberal route because it's covert. See, this way to run from grace flies under the radar of most people's morality. It's like the stealth bomber of sin. It's almost undetectable until it's too late and it's right on top of you and your whole life comes apart, your whole life blows up, your whole identity is gone, and you don't know what to do. Jonah runs from grace through his religious, moral, and cultural pride. Through his conservatism. It's interesting here that in this book of Jonah, when you look at all four chapters, the bad guy is actually the good guy. The bad guy is the guy who's supposed to be the good guy. The rebel is the good rule follower. That God's prophet is actually the big sinner, quote unquote, in this book, who's running from grace and running from God as fast as his feet can take him. It's the religious, the moral, the conservative. Now, let's just ask the text and ask ourselves, why the heck is Jonah running? Why is Jonah so afraid that these people are going to get grace and they're going to be adopted into God's gracious family? Why is he afraid of that? 2 Kings tells us that Jonah prophesied to Israel during a time of unparalleled prosperity. That his people were blessed. Israel's borders were expanding back to the size when David was king. That things were going well for Israel, which doesn't happen very often if you know the nation of Israel, right? These seasons of expansion and these seasons of blessings are very rare if you're an Israelite. And here comes God now through this expansionist, you know, policy that's going on through Jeroboam II. Things are going well. And here comes God. Telling Jonah, Jonah, can you imagine, Jonah's winning, right? Jonah's on the winning team. Jonah's on the good guys, and he just gets to prophesy. Very few prophets had the job of Jonah. Most prophets were like, let me just, Ezekiel, uh, 
It's, I, I always get nervous quoting Ezekiel when there's kids in the room, but I'm sorry. I'm going to go ahead and do it. Ezekiel's job was basically, quit being whores, okay? So Ezekiel said over and over and over again, you're whoring yourself out to other nations, right? Jeremiah, he, doesn't, he gets a bad rap. He's the weeping prophet, right? This guy just weeps all the time because his job's so hard. Jonah actually had a good job for most of his life. He's preaching during a time of expansion. He's, te- he's preaching during a time of prosperity. Hey, God's blessing us. Everybody likes that prophet. And now in the midst of this cultural expansion, the, the, the midst of Israel being built up, now God says, your enemy over there, Assyria, the one who's threatening you, the one who poses the biggest threat to you and, pro- and, and it's going to carry you off into um, slavery, uh, go preach grace to them. Go tell them that I'm a good, gracious, loving God, and, and, I, and, and if they turn from their sin, they can be adopted into the family of God. Jonah says, no. See, to put it simply, Jonah was racist. See, Jonah wants God to be his people's God. See, Jonah wants God to be the God of Israel and Israel only. He doesn't want these godless, rebellious pagans from Nineveh to get grace. He wants to be in God's inner ring. You know what the inner ring is? You've known it since like junior high. The inner ring is usually one lunch table when you're in junior high. You know who it is, right? Or it's the the football huddle, or it's whatever. Well, everybody believes there's an inner ring, and everybody wants to be inside that inner ring, and they want to be accepted, and they want to be known, and they want to be loved, and they want to be they want to be inside. They want to be insiders. Well, Israel is like I want to be an in, or Jonah is like Israel is the inside. Israel is the inner ring, and I want to be inside it. And those pagans, the thing about inner rings is there is no inner ring if there's not people outside of it, right? You're, if you make your way to the lunch table, you get to look around at all the peasants on the outside of the lunch table, right? Duh, right? right? If you're in the huddle, you get to look on the sidelines at all the guys who aren't inside the huddle, right? Or on the bench. So the inner ring here, Jonah wants to be in God's inner ring. He doesn't want these outsiders to be made in, to be grafted in. So Jonah is racist. His cultural pride, his ethnicity, being an Israelite, listen to this, being Israelite means more to him than being a son or a daughter of God through grace. Being an Israelite is more important to his identity than being forgiven and grafted in and one of God's people through grace. So Jonah, what we're going to see here is Jonah, like most of us, I think, especially those if you're on the conservative side and the religious and moral side, Jonah has an immature concept of sin. We see the world as made up of good guys and bad guys. It's like an old Western, right? Where all the bad guys come in and they're all wearing black hats and all the good guys come in and they got white hats and right away you can go, oh, there's the good guys and there's the bad guys. And depending on your personality, you can pick up a hat, right? I like the bad guys, actually. You can go be a bad guy. You want to be a good guy? Put the white hat on, go be a good guy. That's how Jonah kind of sees the world. 
Ninevites, black hats. Israelites, white hats. And it's in this system where we believe that God actually loves the good guys and God is opposed and God hates the bad guys. And thankfully, of course, we are one of the good guys. Isn't that how we always see ourselves? Every, you know, political group, the other ones are the bad guys and they're trying to destroy America, right? We, we get a lot of this on the news right now on, on the radio. Like every other person is like a Nazi in disguise, right? Trying to just tank our country, every, you know? It's not just opposing ideas, it's just they're wicked, right? Good guys, bad guys, everybody does it. We want to label people. We want to throw a label on people so we can separate them. We don't have to love them. We don't have to be friends with them. We can be up here and they can be down there. That's what Jonah does to the Ninevites. See, the problem with that is that Jonah doesn't see his own sin, and neither do we most of the time. He doesn't see his own uh, ethnic pride and his own racism because it's flying below his radar. He's a part of God's chosen people. He's following the rules. He's a good guy. He's not out there whoring around. He's a preacher. But if Jonah could see as God sees, he would know that in fact he himself is wearing a black hat just like the Ninevites, and that his only hope is the grace and the mercy of God, just like every person in this gathering this morning. If you could see as God sees, you'd be sporting the black hat. We'd be the bad guys. And what's so sad is the conservative approach to God and this conservative way to relate to God through my works and through my effort and through being a good and better person Many times, it's not until our lives blow up that we come to see the brokenness of our sin. I said it earlier that I thought I knew the grace of God. I thought I got the grace of God. But it was until that my identity as a preacher, my identity as a leader was removed from me that my life blew up and I realized that my life was built on my own works and my own efforts and my own pride and it wasn't on the grace of God. And what we're going to see with Jonah here is until God says, Jonah thinks he's a good old boy, never meaning no harm, right? That's, Jonah thinks he's, he's, he's a good guy. And it's not, he thinks everything God, you know what? This is, this is how you know you're religious. Anything, and this has really bothered me today. Everything God tells me to do, I'll do it. Peter, Peter was this guy. Lord, tell me what to do, I'll do it. You're going to die with me. Okay, I'll do that. Actually, you will, but you're going to come to the cross. Jonah, anything you want to do, I'll do it. Anything you tell me to say, I'll say it. And he says, God's like, all right, go preach to the Ninevites. Ooh, accept that. What's your accept that? See, religious people don't love God for God. They love God for what God can give them. So when God says, do the one thing that you don't want to do, they think, nope, I'll give up on God. Rich young ruler, God, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus names a few things. He's like, I'm doing all those. Jesus said, all right, one more thing. Go give your money away to the poor. This rich young ruler went away sad. Why? Because his money meant more than, to him than Jesus Christ, than grace, than the salvation of God. See, that's, 
the rich young ruler. That's Jonah. I love God to a point, but if he asks me for my money, then it's a deal breaker. I love God to a point, but when he tells me to cross ethnic lines, it's over. I love God to a point, but when he has a, a liberal move in right next to me, don't be asking me to invite him over for dinner. Right? See, this is where conservatives, they build up this ladder, they build up this rule, these rules where they think they're Christians, and they're not. That's religion. The gospel of Jesus Christ blows up all the dividing walls that cause hostility in our culture. Blows them up. And God will look at you, and the one thing you don't want to do, he'll say, go to the Ninevites. Preach grace to the Ninevites. The one thing he doesn't want to do. And it's not until God, this is the graciousness of our God. It's not until God told him to do that, Jonah thought everything was good. I love God, man. I'm on God's team. I love worshiping him and reading his word. I love it. And it's not until God said, go do, go preach to the Ninevites. It's not until that happened that Jonah realized his identity blew up. He wasn't excited about the grace of God. He wasn't serving God in grace. One of the first things you discover when you begin to understand the gospel is that these two types of people, I'm, just, I'm using big term like liberal and conservative, but that's, there's you know, lots of stuff in there. These two types of people are both running from grace. They're both running from God. They're both running from, the God, from God and wanting to be in control. You get down to it. That's, what it. that's what it's all about. The liberal person is saying, I want to control everything. I want to say what's right for me and what's right for this world. And the conservative is saying, I want to control my life. And I want, if I do these good things, I want good things to happen to me. They're both trying to control God. Now, this is a huge, I hope it is a huge discovery. It was the bomb that went off in my life. Moral and religious people, we've spent the majority of our lives trying to be better than the rebels, right? Conservatives spent so much of their time trying to be better than the liberals. Liberals spend so much of their time trying to be better than the conservatives. So when the gospel of grace comes in and we begin to hear, listen, that all of our do-goodery was just another way to avoid the reality that we're sinners wearing black hats with no hope except the grace of God. It shocks them. It humbles them. Your church going, your Bible reading, your K-love music might all be attempts to run from God and relate to him by sheer grace. See, for far too long, the church has called the rebellious to repentance and left the self-righteous, self-righteous in their seats. Right? And at Sacred City Church, because we believe the gospel, the gospel calls us all to repentance. If you're self-righteous, you have to repent of your self-righteousness. You have to repent of your morality. You have to repent of your do-goodery, just like Jonah. That's what Jonah's struggling with. I'm God's inside. I'm God's inner ring. I'm his prophet. 
Not until Jonah says there's no hope for me except for the grace of God. Not until Jonah abandons himself. I'm going to say this. Abandons himself to the wrath of God will he experience the grace of God. And we're about to see that. Jonah, here, all up until this day, this is the... the this is the day we're about to witness the identity implosion, right? The stealth bomber's been going along. Now it's about to drop the bomb, and, and Jonah is about, his life's about to explode, okay? This is the day that Jonah's racism will be uncovered. This is the day that Jonah, for his whole life, he's felt superior to the Ninevites. He's felt uh, all of his good deeds have kind of built up a wall of security around him that makes him feel good about himself and makes him think that God loves me because I'm his prophet. God loves me because I do good and I serve my community and I love my wife. That's why God loves me because I'm a really good person. But today we see the day where God says, go preach to the Ninevites, that Jonah runs from grace like the mouse runs from the cat. Let's go into verse. Let's just start with verse 3. We're going to go, this, this part will be really quick as I close, Maybe. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And we're going to talk about that next week a little bit. That presence of the Lord, God's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. How can he flee from the presence of the Lord? That's a Hebrew term that literally means Jonah is running from the face of Yahweh. He's running from the face of God. He's running from God's relationship. He did. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with him to Tarshish, away from the face of the Lord. Here we go again. Now listen, this is what we're about to see. God's grace is both sovereign and persistent. It isn't convenient. It doesn't come to us in the ways that we would choose. Hey, I would just like a beautiful spokesman to show up and just tell me about the grace of God. Would that, could you send me an email about the grace of God and help me along on my journey? not how it comes. For Jonah, the grace of God comes to confront and cross his own will. Let me just tell you this. This will throw in there. If you have a God who can't cross your will, you don't have a God, you're God. If God can't tell you no, if God can't go against your feelings and go against your, go against your thoughts, you don't have a God, you're God. You are your own God. So for Jonah, the grace of God comes to confront his will and cross him, to stop him in his tracks. He's running in one direction, and God's going to chase him down and overtake him. And he does, so that, listen, so that he'll feel love, so that he'll get grace. But in order for that to happen, Jonah has to give up control. In order for Jonah to get grace, he's got to give up the reins of his life. And let's look at that. Look at, look at how God sovereignly, uh, persistently comes after Jonah. So Jonah, look at this. We, we said people run from God. Nineveh, liberals, we're running from God in one direction, and we think we're going to find freedom away from the rules and away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah, he's running away from God, thinking he's going to find what? Think he's going to find something else away from the presence of God? Both people are running from God, running from grace in opposite directions. They don't want God. They want their own way. They want to be their own master, their own kings. 
But here is where we get to the cure. It stops runners in their tracks and gives them rest and satisfies their soul. What is it? Is it rules? Is it religion? Is it politics? No. Grace captures sinners. Grace overtakes sinners. The one-way, undeserved love from God overtakes him. The wholeness and the healing and the all-satisfying relationship with God that we all desire deep down in our bones doesn't come delivered up to us the way that we want. Grace comes to us through the storm. Look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great, I mean, this is just, I love this story. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. This is our sovereign God. Jonah, Jonah's running from God. We got to get that in our minds here. Some of you, you, you know, you're running from God. You're trying to drink your sorrows away or you're trying to sleep your sorrows away. Or you, what, you're running from God. And God's like, let me just show you a little bit of something what I can do. He hurls the sea, right? So we got the sea. God is in absolute control of everything on earth, so much so that he can control the sea. The sea starts going nuts. There was a mighty tempest. This huge storm has come up. And now the ship is threatened to break up. This storm is so powerful. God's just showing off just a little bit, that the, Jonah's attempts to flee are about to be crushed, and everyone on the ship is about to die. Then the mariners, right, the sailors were afraid. And I love this. Each cried out to his God, right? You've heard that the, there are no atheists in foxholes, right? When the waves are coming, if you got a God, you pray to him right now, Right? We need help. We need saving. We need saving. So I want you to see this. First, the sovereign grace of God throws a storm, stops Jonah in his tracks. It's the grace of God. Some of you, there's a storm in your life right now. That's the absolute grace of God trying to stop you in your tracks. Okay? Secondly, these pagan, unreligious people are crying out to God. Now, what's good old boy doing? Oh, and then they start hurling the cargo that was in the ship to lighten it so that it would uh, float higher in the water. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and he had lain down and was fast asleep. Now that's interesting. That word fast asleep, it actually means dead asleep. And what it's talking about, it's the same Hebrew term that was used when God put Adam to sleep and did surgery on him, took the rib out and made Eve. Like, you know, kind of like anesthe under anesthesia, you're out. Lights out. This is more than just he's taking a little nap in the boat, right? And I want you to see this. This is what happens. How many of you have ever been so depressed, all you want to do is sleep? That's all you want to do is sleep, right? There's a, there's a way to sleep that's hiding from reality. There's a way to sleep where something in your life, you've lost something in your life, and it meant so much to you that all you want to do is kind of like lay down and die. That's what Jonah's doing. His identity as an Israelite is being on God's inner circle. His pride has been crushed. And now he doesn't know who he is. So he's just knocked out in the bottom of the boat. Waves are crashing. Everybody on board's about to die. The unbelievers are the ones crying out to God. 
going. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Unbeliever, a pagan, can you imagine? You know, you know I do imagine this because this happens to me, actually, as your preacher. When somebody in my fight club or somebody in my missional community goes, well, you're not believing the gospel. I preach the gospel. I study the gospel. I went to school for the gospel. But you're right. I'm not believing the gospel. Right? Like there's this pride. This is the preacher, God's man, and some unbeliever comes down and goes, hey, pray to God, sleepyhead. Right? Wake up. Pray to God. Maybe he might save us. Oh, God might save us? Do you see the sovereignty of God here? God, God's moving the pieces around the board. God's in absolute control of the situation. Keep reading. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots, right? Let's draw straws or roll the dice that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Like they know this is not a normal storm, okay? It was clear skies and all of a sudden we are being overtaken by a, a, just a not natural storm, right? The sailors themselves know something supernatural is happening. Let's draw straws to, feel, to find out what, why this is going on, whose account this is, okay? And supernaturally and sovereignly, look what happens. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, I can imagine Jonah. He's in the bottom of the boat. He's running away from his calling, running away from his identity. He's in the bottom of his, can't I just lay down and die? Now I got this pagan coming in telling me to pray. I don't want to pray. Now we got them casting lots. Of course the lot falls to me. Like he can't get away from God. He can't run away from grace. He just can't get away from him. So then look at this. And this, this has just got to be the last straw. I, when I was reading this, I just cracked up. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And look at this. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And what people are you? What is that? Those are all identity questions. Those are all identity questions, right? What, what, who are you? What do you do? I'm, that, as a pastor, right, those are the questions you don't like to get on an airplane, right? The guy's dropping F-bombs. He's on his third Jack and Coke. He's telling you all these stories. So what do you do? I'm a preacher. Ooh. Rest of the flight right there. Nothing. Right? There's an identity that comes with it. What do you do? I'm God's prophet. Why are you here? I'm running away from him. You're the problem. Look what happens. And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord. And this is like a catechism answer. Obviously, he doesn't fear the Lord. He wouldn't be on the run, right? I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Look at this. Who made the sea and the dry land. This is a confession of sorts. It's my fault. I'm running from God. I'm running from my identity. I'm running from my calling. It's too hard. I didn't want to do it. I'm too proud. I'm too arrogant. I don't want to accept the grace of God that I'm no better than the Ninevites. So I'm on the run. 
Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew again that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Listen, this is God's confrontational grace. God's grace comes to us in a storm. Jonah wants to go one way, but God loves him too much to leave him to his own folly, so God confronts him. Now listen, in the book Moby Dick, there's a preacher in the book of Moby Dick who preaches a sermon on Jonah. And this preacher says this, if we obey God, the hardest part about obeying God is right here. Listen, if we obey God, we have to disobey ourselves. Where the hardness And it's in this disobeying ourselves where the hardness of obeying God consists. That's what Jonah is confronted with. He doesn't like the Ninevites. And God says, go preach grace to them. He has to disobey his racial pride. He has to disobey his um, ethnocentricity. He has to disobey that, and it's hard. I'm going to ask you, Has this happened to you yet? Have you been overtaken by the grace of God through the storms in your life in such a way that you've had to disobey yourself? Has God chased you down and overtaken you in the storm? See, if you only obey God when it's convenient to you, you haven't been changed by grace. If you only give when you've got extra money in your pocket, you haven't been changed by grace. If you only love people like yourself, you haven't been changed by grace, or at least changed enough by grace. If God can't ask us to do something that goes against our will, and we still go ahead and do it, then we're just like Jonah, still trying to use God and live our life on our own terms. This is probably the scariest part of this text. The last thing I'm going to say. You know what God's saying? To receive grace, we have to give up control. To receive grace, we have to release the reins of our life over to a sovereign God. Interesting to me when I think about it. Jonah's in a boat. Waves are coming. Everybody in the boat is going to die. Look at me. The only way Jonah dies is if he doesn't give up control. Listen, if Jonah tries to stay safe and stay in the boat, He dies, and everybody with him dies. The whole boat goes under, okay? The only way Jonah to get the grace and to get the freedom and to get the salvation that he wants is to admit, it's my fault, I'm a sinner, I'm just as wicked as as the Ninevites, please pick me up and throw me into the wrath of God. Pick me up and throw me into the storm. Pick me up and throw me into the waters. And it's under the waters, it's under the waves that he finds the love of Christ, it's, what do I mean he finds the love of Christ? Jesus, you just said he hasn't, Jesus wasn't born for 750 years. You know the story. Throw him in the water, swallowed by a fish, 
spends three days in the bottom of, in the belly of a fish. He repents to God. All right, fine, I'll go to these Ninevites. The whale spits him up on dry land. Jesus says in the Gospels, I'm not going to give this wicked generation any other signs other than this, the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's Jesus saying? And he says, one who is greater than Jonah is here. What does that mean? Jonah was thrown into the wrath of God and was swallowed up and dwelt in the belly of the whale for three days. Jesus Christ was thrown into the wrath of God and he took all the wrath of God on. He was in a tomb for three days. Jonah was resurrected out of the mouth of the fish. Jesus Christ was resurrected out of the grave. See, Jesus is the true and better Jonah. The only way we find the grace of God. It's not by playing it safe. By saying, I have no other righteousness in myself. Throwing ourselves on the mercy of God. Throwing ourselves on the grace of God. Letting Jesus drown you're trying to control your life, you're never going to experience this type of love. You're trying to keep your life as comfortable as possible, you're never going to experience this type of love. This type of love is only found on the other side, on the underside of a storm. I was with some Acts 29 brothers this week. It's our church planning network. And one of our, we're talking about how we're going to assess new men that come into our network. And one of the things that we said um, we're not going to approve any new church planners who haven't been through a season of outward success and a season of outward failure. What is that to say? We're not going to approve any church planners who haven't been through a storm. They haven't been, they haven't just, haven't, I have nothing to stand upon except the grace of God. See, men's identity, women's identity, they're found in the storm. That's what we see with Jonah. In the storm of God's wrath, that we'll find our Savior. Let me pray. Father, I feel like I could just keep going on and on and on about how good you are and how gracious you are and how kind you are. I ask that you would take this story, this gospel story, and you would take it deeper into our bones. That we wouldn't look to our ethnicity. We wouldn't look to our money. We wouldn't look to our marriages. We wouldn't look to our political party. We wouldn't look to our children or our identity. Look to you. We could see that, we could look in the mirror that we, could, we wear a black hat like Jonah. We're proud. Rebellious, we're running from you. And we you're graciously pursuing us. You're graciously coming after us. You've used a million different circumstances to get the people in this room this morning. And you want to overwhelm them with your grace that you love them where they are because of the work of Jesus. So I pray. Right now, that people who thought, oh, I gotta be good enough to go to church, or I gotta be better than other people to go to church, I pray that they would see and hear the gospel that we're all sinners, and the only hope for us is in Jesus Christ, a man who was crucified, who was drowned, let's say, in the wrath of God, 
on our behalf. Jonah didn't die because Jesus did die. Father, I pray that we'd cling to that grace. We'd worship a God who comes after us with that type of grace. And as we come to take the sacrament this morning, that that we would take that grace into us. We would receive that love and that mercy and that kindness from a God who pursues wayward sinners. Thank you for being a God who chases after us. Would you catch us? Would you overtake us today? In Christ's beautiful name we pray. Amen.